All right, that's on, good. Well, there are so many nice things up here that I'm confident I can break my leg on. <laughs> so I have my parameters set out for me here. It's really good to be back. It's nice to see some folks face-to-face instead of just online. Uh, I appreciate being here. I appreciate John and Mark giving me the opportunity to speak uh, and to open our series. Uh, It's a month-long series on the incarnation of Christ. And so to do that, let me pray, and we will get into the Word. Father, it is a privilege to open your word today and to to think about the incarnate divine son of God lots of uh, words that could be confusing here I pray that you will uh, not let us be confused I pray that as we come into this time uh, we will come in with open hearts we realize that that we have much sin in our life much sin that that goes unrecognized and unconfessed, anxiety and fear and anger in life or disappointment with the things that you bring our way. I pray for this uh, next little bit of time that we will just hear you speak in your word, that we will hear you speak personally to us. I thank you for the Christians in Colossae that we're gonna read about today for the struggles that they went through that that have been recorded for our benefit. I pray that we would be a benefit to others as we learn what you have for us this morning as well. We pray this because of Jesus Christ, the, the incarnate divine Son of God and the redemption and the reconciliation that he brought to us. Amen. Well, about 10 years ago or so, I ran my third marathon and my marathon career is in the distant past now I'm convinced of that but my third marathon was my best one I had uh, in my first marathon I was sorely disappointed and I do mean sore and I do mean disappointed it 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 really uh, zapped me and so I I kind of got the bit in my teeth and went after the second one and did a good bit better. And by the third one, I was ready. I was running 50 or 60 miles a week, preparing for this thing. I had a goal. I wanted to, I wanted to beat three and a half hours on it. And I, I had my plan, my strategy mapped out. And for the most part, did pretty well. I got into the marathon and uh, stayed on pace pretty good. I, I only missed my goal by three minutes. And so... By all accounts, I was pleased. In retrospect, it would have been good to have a goal to to actually be able to walk after the marathon was over. But uh, we caught up and got better, as you can see. But in that marathon, uh, one of my favorite things in the marathon is when you pass people. Oh, you know, it feels good to pass people. It doesn't feel so good to be passed, but it feels good passing people. You kind of look back at them like, you know, amateur, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, in this marathon, there were, there were two young ladies who were running, and what I noticed is I would pass them, and then they would pass me, and I would pass them. And, they, and as I watched, I, I realized their strategy. Their strategy was, from what I could tell, they had two components. One was talk nonstop. They were just chatting the whole way like they were just in the park, you know? It was like no big deal. And then each mile when we came up to a water station, about, I don't know, 50 yards or so before that water station, they would stop and walk. And they would walk through the station, get their drink, and then walk a little ways after and then pick up. And so I would pass them in the water stations because I wasn't going to walk. That wasn't part of my plan. And then they would pass me before we got to the next one. Well, somewhere in the race, I don't know exactly where, I, I quit passing them. And I don't know where it happened because my field of vision, you know, started to shrink as my vital organs were fighting for all my blood. And um, so I don't know exactly where everything happened. But at the end of it, you know, you can see people's times and that sort of thing. And they beat me by a pretty good margin by running and walking and chatting. (laughs) They were obviously many years younger than myself, I'm guessing. 
But, but I had a strategy that involved struggle. I mean, I was attacking each mile, and I was very conscious of the mile. And I think their strategy, one thing that helped them is they were, they were focused on something besides the mile, right? They were, they were talking with each other. Well, something similar occurs with the church in Colossae, the Colossian church. The, the Colossian church is not one that Paul started, but it was one that he influenced. And uh, he got message that some weird stuff was going on there. Now, this church, they, they were exactly like us. As Christians, we all are saved exactly the same way, right? It's, it's Christ who saves us. We realize that our hope is in him. We turn from our old way of life, and we, and we throw our lot in with him. So that, that's exactly the same. And their lives are pretty much the same as ours. They met together on a regular basis. They read the scripture, they sang, they prayed, they fellowship, same sort of things. And then they dealt with some of the same struggles we do. You know, they had financial problems, relationship problems, probably work, tension, those sorts of things. And, and somewhere along the way, when they're sitting there in their home or wherever they met, someone started looking at scripture in a way that wasn't exactly right. They noticed that, hey, look, you know, we're, it, it feels like God's not answering our prayers sometimes or we're still struggling with things or if I, you know, if I step back and look at the way things are, my life's really not that much different than my neighbor's life. And I really can't remember the last time God actually answered a prayer the way I wanted him to. Some of the same things we deal with. And so as they were looking for maybe a way to, to energize or to boost their Christianity so that these things would change, they began to kind of veer off course with Scripture. So someone uh, realized that, hey, in, in Scripture we see where these angelic beings are involved in some way in creation and they're they're some way involved in delivering the law to us and they act as some kind of intermediary between man and God so maybe the reason God's not responding to us is because our message isn't getting through this angelic bureaucracy <laughs> right they the way they saw it is is there's there's ranks and and powers in the angels which, which of course there is and as they viewed it, God is up here, and we're here, and then there's these layers of angelic government in between, for lack of a better way to say it. And if we want to get our message to God, then it's got to kind of pass through the ranks. And so maybe it's getting held up in there somewhere. And so to, to keep it from getting held up, since we know the angels were involved in some way in delivering the law to us, maybe we need to be more vigilant and do things like... Uh, recognize certain laws, keep up with certain holy days, and that sort of thing. And so they were kind of going back to some of these Judaistic ways. Well, this was a concern for Paul. Um, it, was, uh, it was an attempt to, to fix a problem that may not necessarily be a problem. But does this sound familiar yet? Do, do you sometimes find that God is not answering prayer the way you would like for him to? or maybe most of the time? Does it feel like he's silent? Is there tension in your house? Do you get fed up with work? Are finances a strain? Do you feel sometimes like the mask you're wearing is a Christian mask, right? And behind that mask, everything's really kind of the, the way it was all along. Or maybe you just turn up the worship music real loud to try to drown out the deafening silence of God. Is this something that, that maybe you experienced sort of like they were? Well, their, their um, remedy was to kind of look for ways to supercharge what was going on in their in their life, to, to maybe unlock the code to God. Maybe there's a, another way that we're not getting, and so we're going to try some things. And and, you know, we do this today. We, we see, you know, denominations that are kind of veered off that have whole different ways of doing things, um, incorrect ways, not, not that all non-Baptists are doing that. But right here, 
You know, in, in our lives, there are things that I observe, like, like people sometimes will lean on some sort of an ecstatic worship experience. Maybe, maybe we get in touch with the music, you know, and it feels so good, and we have great quality music here. But we let that feeling and that, of that music going through us, we let that replace what the truth of Scripture is. I really like what Jason said earlier is, is, is don't make a decision based on whatever feeling you may have from this, from this uh, plea, but go and pray on it. In other words, let, let's not be driven by the feelings that we have. And sometimes we replace feeling with truth, or replace truth with feeling, rather. Or sometimes I'll see people do this. They will, they will find a scripture that says something, that has the words they want, and they will, they will go, I'm going to claim that scripture. That is my scripture. Now, it may have nothing to do with the context or the intent of the scripture, but it's got the words that they want, and so they say, this is mine, and because it's in the Bible, it must be okay. Or maybe we just pretend that things are the way we want them to be until reality catches up with our imagination. These are different ways that, that we try to, to manipulate reality so that reality becomes what we want it to be. Well, Paul's reaction to this when he heard the news was to write the letter to the Colossians. And in this letter, he did something very simple. He, he gave them the truth about the incarnate divine Son of God. So let me just explain those words in case it's confusing anybody. When we say incarnate, we mean in the flesh. So carne, right? I'm thinking of chili con carne. Isn't that some kind of sauce with meat in it? Carne is a Latin word for meat, so it's meat, it's flesh. So incarnation is the being in the flesh. It's the embodiment now, when we talk about the Son of God being incarnate, we're talking about more than flesh. We're saying he took on a human flesh and a human soul. Right, the whole package. So it's the incarnate, divine Son of God. And so when I say divine Son of God, I mean God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. God the Son embodied in flesh, incarnate. So that's what... That's what the incarnate divine son of God is. And I'm using those words a lot because it helps me keep clear what we're talking about. We're talking about the divine son of God who, who at a point in history, roughly 2,000 years ago, took onto himself a human body. He didn't change from being God to human. He added humanity to himself. We know this is true. We're not going to know how it works. That's, that's above us but we know what it is because scripture tells us that. And so Paul's reaction was to, to speak into this kind of weird Christianity they were developing and to speak the truth about the incarnate divine son of God. We have one of the greatest passages in Colossians chapter one, if you turn there. We have one of the greatest passages about Jesus Christ, the divine son of God in that, in that uh, portion of scripture. Paul basically said this. He said, angels are real. They absolutely are real. There, there's absolutely these principalities and powers for sure, but they do not stand between God and man. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. He wanted them to focus on endurance and patience and joy. This is where the marathon experience comes in, right? I was, I was enduring. I was hanging on for dear life. But these, these gals that I saw running, they were enduring with patience. They could walk through these stations and with joy as they just chatted each other up throughout the whole thing. Quite a different experience than what I had. Same race, same miles, same heels. It was all uphill the entire way, right? But they made it without a problem, at least that I could see. And they weren't carried out on a stretcher. So Paul's focus is that there's one hope, 
If you want your Christian life to be everything you think it should be, there is one hope, and that one hope is Jesus Christ, the incarnate divine Son of God. So with that, let's, let's look at chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 11, and I'm going to ask you if you are able to, to stand while we read God's word. Beginning in verse 11. And we're picking up mid-sentence here, so some of your translations, every translation I looked at had a different word that started here, so don't get lost on the first word. But I'm picking up where it says, essentially, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He, now we're talking about the Son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thank you for that. may be seated. There's a lot in this text. Paul first expresses his desire for them. We picked up midway through a prayer uh, Paul had for them, but the essential... It boiled down to this part, this part where he said, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now that's a good thing. that That would be right in what we're looking for. We're looking for, let me have the power of his glorious might. Man, if I had that in my life, things would be good. So Paul says, this is my desire for you. I want for you the same thing you want for yourself. All power according to his glorious might. That's a lot of power. But it's power to do this, to endure for all endurance and patience and joy with thanksgiving, uh, giving thanks to the Father. In other words, Paul's saying, you're not getting out of the marathon your life is still your life. He, becoming a Christian, we don't automatically change our circumstances. The, the power is not to make things different. The power is to endure the things that we're going through. But not just to endure them, but to endure them with patience and with joy. Now that's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. We both walk through this world together, but Christians can walk through this world with with everything that it brings our way with patience and with joy. So that's Paul's prayer. And so the next thing he does now is explain why 
this is okay. He's going to take this next significant portion to explain why this is okay, and it's going to be okay because their hope is in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Their hope is not in having things to be different. They don't have to worry about, am I or am I not communicating with God if their hope is in Jesus Christ? He says in verse 12, God the Father, so we're talking about God the Father right now, not God the Son. God the Father has done three amazing things. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance uh, of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have the redemption and forgiveness of sins. So the first thing is that God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, he's reflecting on some things that happened in the Old Testament. This is just like Israel. God qualified Israel. He he chose Israel out of the other nations. Their qualification was based on him, not on anything they did. He qualified them to be his people. He qualified them for the inheritance as a holy nation. Now, Paul says, he says a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. Don't let them disqualify you insisting on asceticism. By asceticism, what he means is it's a life of of self-sacrifice, a life of discipline. Think of Think of how monks live in a monastery. They live an ascetic life, which means it's a life of basically poverty and simplicity, and I get rid of everything, and I, and I fast, and I do all of these regimented things. Don't let anybody disqualify you insisting that you live that way, and don't let anybody disqualify you uh, insisting on the worship of angels like you have to bow down to these angels to get through to God like they somehow hold the key between you and God. And people who go on in detail about visions and are puffed up, with, uh, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, he says. Don't let anyone disqualify you focused on those things because you are qualified by God the Father. And if he's qualified you, that's all that matters. No one's going to disqualify you. He's qualified us. If we're the church, if we're the believers in Christ, we are qualified by God the Father. It's not because of anything we did. He qualified us. And so here we are, the qualified ones by God the Father. The next thing he says is that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness is a is again like Israel. Israel was delivered out of Egypt, out of that domain of idolatry. They were were taken out of it. This this domain is a, a kingdom. It is a civilization where evil is the rule. Misery is the goal. Harsh slavery is the norm. That's what the domain of darkness looks like. That's the the world we were in. We were in a domain of darkness before he qualified us and delivered us from that. He delivered us from that into this inheritance of the saints, a place of light, he said right before this. It's a a place of light, a place, a, a kingdom that is lit, that is not dark. It's a place where there is purity, There are no more thoughts of hatred or lust or envy. It's a place of knowledge. No more guessing, no more self-deceit, no more false pretenses. It's a place of gladness, no more despair, no more sadness, no more rage at life. We've been delivered out of that darkness. And then the third thing he says is that we have, he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
Right? We're, we're now in this kingdom that is ruled by Christ, and it is a kingdom, by the way, of no condemnation. When he said, delivered from the domain of darkness, he speaks about that also in chapter 2, verse 8, and he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. So they were in bondage. They were in this domain of darkness. He says, now you're not anymore. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world the, this angelic um, uh, belief system they had going things that are not according to Christ and then he says in, in chapter 2 verse 16 let no one pass judgment on you because they're in a kingdom now where there is no judgment in the previous kingdom, everything was judgment. But in the kingdom of the Son, there is no judgment. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to the festival or the new moon or the Sabbath. All of these laws, all these regulations, all these superstitions that they're putting their hope into, don't be deceived by those things. Don't be taken captive by those things. Don't be condemned by those things. Because that is not your reality. God the Father has given you a different reality, and now he transfers from God the Father to his beloved Son. He is, the God the Father has qualified us and taken us here and put us in the kingdom of God the Son. And the next several verses is going to be talking about this kingdom of God the Son. So now we've moved to the second person of the Trinity. In this kingdom, he says in verse... Uh, 14, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. All of the things that we think will get us closer to God or get us an audience with God that are not Christ, they are false and unnecessary. In the kingdom of God, we have been redeemed. Redemption is simply being bought out of the slave market, and we have been forgiven, and that just means that our sins have been sent away. This is what Christ has done. He's bought us out of the slave market and sent our sins away. There's no more condemnation here. So this is Paul's introduction. Now he's moving into the meat. He's moving into what he really wants them to understand. That their hope is in the human, incarnate Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. This is, this is critical in this next few uh, texts we're going to read. That their hope is in the human, right? The one who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. The, the human, the incarnate Jesus Christ, who is the divine Son of God. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, He being Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of these angelic beings who are real, they are really created by him. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is amazing stuff. In, chapter, in verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the true image of the invisible God. You know, Adam was created in the image of God, but not in the way that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the, the, the man 2,000 years ago, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is, he, when, when we look at the, to see the invisible God, we look at Jesus that is looking at the invisible God. And so Jesus Christ, he is the one restoring the image of God in humanity that Adam lost. Right? Adam, Adam was in the image of God, but in sin, when we sinned in Adam, we marred it, we corrupted it, 
We deformed it. Jesus is restoring that. Now, it's the, he is the image of the invisible God, so this is a bit of a, an irony. God is a spirit. And when we say God is the spirit, we mean that the Father is a spirit, and the Son is a spirit, and the Holy Spirit is obviously a spirit. Right? God is spirit. If we move ourselves back before Genesis 1-1, there's not any physical being. There's nothing physical. There's only God, and God is spirit. So whatever we may have in our head that puts God in any sort of body is, is wrong. God, Father, Son, and Spirit is spirit. And when we say God is spirit, we're saying he's in a spirit that's different than the way we're a spirit. We have a spirit, right? But our spirit is, is finite, right? It's bound up right now in this body of mine. And when we're disembodied, we don't, we don't spread, we don't become omnipresent, right? Angelic beings are spirits, but they are finite. Even when we think of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is, is characterized as moving from here to there. When we talk about God, the one God, we're talking about an omnipresent, invisible spirit. Right? God is spirit. But now, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is a physical image, the exact imprint of God's nature in Jesus Christ. If we want to look at God, we're going to look at the face of Christ. Now, when we leave this life and we have our glorified bodies, God is still going to be a spirit, and we're still going to be finite. That means that in eternity, when we look at God, we're going to look in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't believe there's any scriptural foundation to say that we will ever see God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. When we look at God, now or then, we will be looking at Jesus Christ. Uh, continuing in verse 15, it says, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's the firstborn of creation. Now he's not the firstborn in the sense that he was the first to be created. I mean, Jesus Christ, the human, was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. That was, that was an historical event. There wasn't an embodied Christ floating around in eternity, and then 2,000 years ago, he kind of went in and came out. That's not the way things went down, right? That there was not an incarnate divine son of God. There was a divine son of God, but not an incarnate divine son of God until 2,000 years ago. But he was, it says here, the firstborn of all creation. In what sense, then, is he the firstborn of all creation? It's because he, it says, for by him all things were created. He's the firstborn because he's the, he is the agent of creation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the word of God through which God created he was the agent of creation. Now, catch this. This can be really confusing. Don't let it be, it, it'll be real confusing if we try to understand how it works. Don't try to understand how it works. You're not gonna understand how it works. Just understand what it's saying. What we have here is, is Jesus Christ, the man, flesh and blood man who walked 2,000 years ago. He was the son of God incarnate. He was the eternal son of God. He's not a human being that God adopted. He was a, he, it was God the son taking on, I can't explain how this works. We're not gonna explain, but what he did was take on a human nature, added a human nature to himself 2,000 years ago. That person, the son of God, 
who, who was the person of Jesus Christ is the one who created. And so it's in that way that we can say Jesus Christ, the incarnate divine son of God, was the agent of creation. He was the word that spoke creation into being. And so in this case, he's the firstborn, and by firstborn is meant here that he is the a divinely appointed heir of creation. Right? When we think of firstborn, we're thinking of who's going to get the money. Right? That's, that's the deal in Scripture. Right? We, and we always, it's always confused in Scripture. You have Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. He should have got the money, but Jacob got it. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. He was the firstborn, not by virtue of being chronologically first, but by the fact that he was the agent of creation. And so he was the divinely appointed heir of creation. All of this is his. And Paul, by the way, he does something that he doesn't do in, in except I think one other book, is he throws in, by the way, this includes all of these divine, uh, these spiritual beings. He says, uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, because this is what the Colossians were experiencing and struggling with. He was saying, God created them too. You're created, they're created. You're all creatures, right? They, we don't bow down to angels. We only bow down to God. And they have nothing on Christ. They are a creation of Christ. All things, he said, are created through him. So this is, this is a, another very important point. Jesus of Nazareth, right, the incarnate son of God, was the goal. He was not only the agent of creation, but all things were created through him and for him. And so when, when, when we say he is... Uh, uh, the image of God, here, here's what's happening. Jesus, as, if I were to paint, it, let's do it this way. If someone who was skilled was to paint a picture, right? That would not be me. But if someone took a blank canvas and they were gonna create a painting, they were gonna, they're gonna create something that's coming out of their mind, out of their imagination. This painting says something about them. And in the same way, creation, everything that's created living or not, rocks, dirt, you know, whatever it is, bears in some way the imprint, the imprint of God on it, the imprint of the Son of God on it, because it's originating from him, from his thought. Not only is it originating from him, it is created for him. The reason he created was not just to put stuff out there, he created stuff for him. The purpose of creation is for him. The goal of creation is him. And so all things are created through him and for him. And what this means, what this means is if we want to see creation the way it is supposed to be, if we want to understand it in a meaningful way, what are we going to look at? the face of Jesus Christ. So if I want to see God, I look at the face of Jesus Christ. If I want to see creation as it's supposed to be, which we can't do because of sin, right? When we sin, we plucked our eyes out. We can't see the way, th way things are. We will again one day. But if I want to see creation the way it's supposed to be, I've got to see it through the one who made it and, and for the purpose it was designed for. And so whether I'm looking at God or whether I'm looking at creation, I must look through the incarnate divine son of God to get a clear picture. Isn't that amazing? Ephesians 1.10, God said that it was his eternal plan to unite all things to Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's eternal plan. Jesus Christ is, Jesus Christ has come absolutely 100% to, to uh, redeem us from sin. Absolutely. That's the immediate reason of his coming. The ultimate reason of his coming is beyond that. 
Ultimately, in eternity, God set up creation with sin that would be a part of it, evil that would be a part of it, so that Christ would come in as Redeemer. That was, for him to reveal himself in his glory the way he wanted to, which will happen at the last day on the day of the Lord, sin and evil and all of this stuff that we go through individually in our lives is a part of that. It's all going to come together at that point, and we're going to see him as he has desired to be seen. And he tells us that in Ephesians, that, that it was his eternal plan to unite all things to Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus Christ is the purpose of creation. And then it says at the end of verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I didn't see this until I was studying for this. I used to think by that that what it meant is Jesus is that there was creation and we had all these things that were created. And, and these things were either gonna vaporize if Jesus wasn't holding them together by his word, right? It says this in what Hebrews 3 also, that he holds things together by the power of his word. In him all things hold together. And so I kind of had this picture of, of air in a balloon where where if the balloon wasn't there, the air would just, it'd be gone. And the balloon was holding it all together. Or he's holding all these ropes, just keeping everything together. But that's not what's happening. Everything was created by him and for him. Everything is converging on him. It's more like he's a magnet with everything coming into him. Everything points to him. Not only does all of creation point to him, every rock, every insect, every animal, but all of history points to him. He is the center of history. The events, the, the, the events of the world and the events of our lives are all moving to Christ, to the day of the Lord. They, they were moving to his first coming. We look back on that, but ultimately we're looking ahead to the final day when God will be revealed in Christ as he has planned from all eternity. And so he holds all things together. He is the purpose of all things. He is the image of God. He's the firstborn of creation. It all comes together in him. So to the Colossians, Paul said these these angelic beings were created by Christ and for Christ, they take their orders from him. If they're gonna be involved in any way as intermediaries between you and God, that's fine, but realize that they're not, they're not in charge of any of that. God is in charge of that. And the, the true mediator is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. He's saying to the colony, First Baptist in the colony. Jesus Christ is the center of creation. He's the center of history. Your life, your circumstances are by him and for him. And you, each of us, collectively and each of us individually is moving towards that day when we will see him as he is. And every event of our life will make sense in that context. So the human incarnate son of God is the divine creator. Then in this next text, it is, I'll stay right over that. It is the divine son of God is the incarnate recreator. Okay, catch the words that just changed there. Before it was the human the incarnate divine son of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnate divine son of God, who he set up as the creator. Now, he's taking the, the uh, what did I say? He's taking the divine son of God. He's starting with the divine, not the incarnate. He's starting with the divine son of God, and he's showing how he is the incarnate redeemer. Isn't this interesting? So we just saw how the human Messiah, Jesus, was actually the divine son of God who created. Now we're gonna see how the divine son of God is the incarnate 
recreator, the redeemer. He says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So why is church a category in this discussion when we're talking about creation and God? How does church get into this category? Well, it's because church, the church, is a special type of creation. We, the people in here versus unbelievers, we are a special type of creation. Not by anything we've done on our own, because we've been qualified by God. Transferred into his kingdom by, by God. But we're a special type. What type is that? We are recreation. We are a new creation. We are the ones who are assured of resurrection to life. Bodily resurrection. Brand new creation. We are the redeemed. We are the recreated ones. We will be. It's assured. So we can say we are the recreated ones. Born again. Recreated beings. He is the firstborn of creation because he created He is also the firstborn from the dead. The way he's the firstborn from the dead, the way he's the the firstborn of new creation is by virtue of the fact that he was the first one to raise from the dead. He was first in line. He actually did it first, right? Chronologically, he was the first one to rise from the dead. So he is the firstborn in chapter 18, uh, verse 18. He's the head of the body He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he is is the head of the church. The church lives and moves and has its being in him in a very special way. The things we do are things that he, the head, commands us to do. He's, He's the first one of recreation. And then it says at the end of this verse that in everything he might be preeminent. What does everything include at this point? The way I see it, he's talked about him being the image of God. If we want to see God, we're not saying that God the Son is more God than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit, but from our perspective, God is climaxed in Christ. That is our view of God. He is preeminent in that way. He is preeminent in creation because not only did he create, but he is the purpose. The goal of creation is him. And he is preeminent in recreation. He is not only the recreator, he was the first to be recreated. The the flesh and blood, son of God. Jesus Christ was the first to be recreated. In everything, he might be preeminent now he explains this a little bit for in him he says in verse 19 all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell it will serve us to do a little review of the trinity at this point that's not a confusing topic at all is it that'll clarify things the trinity God is one And God is three. The Father is a person. He's three persons. The Father is a person. The Son is a person. And the Spirit is a person. Three persons. One God. The Father is God. And the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. The Father is not God in any way different than the Son. The Son is not God in any way different than the Holy Spirit, etc., They are all God, equally God, equally divine. One God, three persons. Now, it's not like this. It's not like we would say that that Sam and John and Chris are three persons, but they're all human. We're not saying that because they are three humans also. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he's one God, And yet each person is fully God. The Father is fully God. 
The Father is self-existent. The Father is omnipotent. The Son is fully God. The Son is uncreated. He's omnipotent. The Spirit, the same. They are all the same, but there's only one God. There's only one uncreated. There's only one omnipotent. And you go down the line of the attributes. Three and one. They all are God in the exact same way. They're not three equally divine persons. We're not saying they're equally divine. We're saying they are three that are the same divine person. The one divine. It's not three persons that are equally God, but three that are the one God. So when we talk about all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily, we're talking about the, the fullness of the deity. We, can, we could go through the attributes if we wanted to. We could go through self-existence. We could go through um, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, these things. And we could say they dwell, the fullness of God dwells in him, was pleased to dwell in him. We also, uh, uh, and so this, it is this power, this power of the Trinity that is also making him preeminent, right? It's not, it's not one that sticks out from the others in that sense. It is the preeminent God as expressed in Jesus Christ, the human being. That's the amazing part. Well, he says too that, um, uh, he's, he's, he's explaining reconciliation here to them. And, he, and we go to verse 20, and he says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So how did he reconcile? We're, we're still talking about um, uh, recreation here. How this redemption happened. First of all, we needed the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in the Son. And, and now we're going to look, so we've looked at the one and the three, we've looked at the Trinity. Now we're going to look at the one person of the Son who has a human nature and a divine nature. Equally as simple to follow as the Trinity, right? Again, this is not something we're going to understand how it works. We're just understanding what Scripture is presenting to us. This is what it is, not how it is. So the Son of God, the divine Son of God, that second person of the Trinity is divine, obviously, has been from all of eternity, but 2,000 years ago, he took on a human nature. He had to be a real man. If he was going to redeem creation... If he was going to reconcile creation to God, he had to be a real man because the sin occurred in a human. And so it has to be atoned for in a human, a human soul, a human body, a human mind, a human heart. He was truly man in every way except he had no sin. He had to bear the punishment that is equivalent to the sin that man committed, that is equivalent to the evil that man committed, and he had to fulfill all the righteousness that a human has to fulfill. I have no idea what time it is. All right. So we still have 30, 45 minutes? Okay. Awesome. He also had to be divine. He had to be divine so that he could hold up the human under the wrath of God. Think of, it, think of Moses. Remember when they had that battle and Moses had to hold, as long as his hands were up, they would win the battle. And then two guys had to come help him hold up. Well, Jesus, the human could not bear the wrath of God on its own. So he had to be divine to help bear him up so that he could endure the wrath as a human to the end. He had to get to the end of the wrath. He had to overcome death and impart life and resurrection, and only the divine could do that. Only God could make the individual work of one man an infinite work. It had to be a work that would cover all of the elect, 
Right? He, couldn't just, he couldn't just redeem one in one human body, and he wasn't going to come as all, so he, it had to be God with the, the divine nature with the human nature to make it an infinite effort. Well, this is what Paul explains to the Colossians. The Colossians who are looking for something more. They're going through this life and they're struggling and they're, they're wanting something more and so they're starting to reach out into all of these crazy ways. And Paul says, no, it's, it's with the same way you were saved, the same person you put your hope in then is the person you put your hope in now. They wanted heaven on earth. They wanted it now. What we have is, is not what we will have then, but it's, it's only different in degree. We have now communion with God. We have all the spiritual blessings. They're going to be to a different degree when we're past this life, but they're not going to be different. Not different blessings. We have those now. Our hope is in Christ who is preeminent. He is our connection to God. We have a communion with God. He is also our connection to this world. It says in, uh, let's look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled with his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He says, the Father has qualified you. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son. In this kingdom, we are redeemed and we're forgiven because the Son is preeminent in all things. He's preeminent over creation. He's preeminent over recreation. And this preeminent, incarnate, divine Son of God will present us to the Father holy and blameless. You want... You want to have audience with God, right? You're wanting God's attention. That's going to happen in time. He is going to present you holy and blameless. And so Paul is praying simply for them to have power to endure with patience and joy. And they can, they can do that because they recognize that this one who have their hope is in unlike the angels and the rituals and all those things, this one who their hope is in is the preeminent one. All things hold together in him. So whether I'm going through bad circumstances or good circumstances, I understand that they are his. They are for him. He is the goal. He is completely in control of that. Finally, he ends with, we must, though, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. He is the one who's qualified us, yet he says we must continue in the faith. What's happening with that? Paul is clearly presenting both predestination and man's responsibility. These two things are not mutually exclusive. They always go together predestination as the eternal work of God is the ultimate factor. But in an incomprehensible way, it is not incompatible with the responsibility of man. It is the environment in which our responsibility resides. One author said that if the Bible teaches the final perseverance of the saints, which it does, it also teaches that the saints are those who finally persevere in Christ. Perseverance is the test of reality. Those who are qualified by God will persevere. How do we know who's qualified by God? It's the ones who persevere. Well, God hears our prayers. The race we're running in life, the life we're living is the one he has given to us. There's no surprises. He knows every step of the way. Our life is the answer to our prayers, actually, if we think about it that way. Our lives are held together by him because they are moving toward the day of the Lord. 
So what do we do with this? We do what Paul did. We pray for the power according to his glorious might so that we can endure with patience and joy. And if you don't want that, if you say, I don't want to endure it, (laughs) I want it to be different, then you take that up with him as well. (laughs) It's going to be the way he's decided it's going to be. He may have something different in mind. But we should submit to the life he's given us, to the circumstances. This is not to say there's no ambition in life. That's not what this is. It's to say that the circumstance I'm under today is the circumstance he's given. Help me to endure that circumstance with patience, but not just with patience. I don't just want to run for the T-shirt and then not be able to walk for the next two months. That was my strategy. I want to run with joy. I want to run with, with joy as I go through this race which was a strategy I knew nothing about until I saw these girls running. All right, well, may you respond to the word today in a way that is appropriate for your life. Let me pray, and I'll hand this over to John. Father, thank you again for the experience of the Colossians, the things they went through, the the things that confused them, that ultimately caused Paul to write these amazing words, to reveal such great truth to us, to make so much sense out of who you are, out of creation, out of the circumstances you bring our way. Thank you that you are preeminent in creation and in recreation. Please be preeminent in our lives. Give us the power according to your glorious might to endure the life you've given us with patience and with joy. Amen.